Welcome to What the Buck, a monthly podcast produced by Buckhalter, a professional corporation. I'm your host, Richard Ormond, a shareholder at Buckhalter and founder of Ejudicate.com. This podcast is to provide up-to-date legal developments. Our first season will focus on issues facing businesses in the now-emerging post-COVID world. From video trials to employment considerations to privacy and so much more, the world from the legal perspective has evolved quickly during the pandemic, and many of these changes are here to stay. If you want to reach out to us, please feel free to contact us at podcast at buckhalter.com with questions, comments, or suggested topics. Now, on to today's guest. Welcome, everyone, to What the Buck. This is Richard Ormond from the Los Angeles Buckhalter office. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to Anthony Martin, one of our newest attorneys here at the firm. He is seated in our Scottsdale, Arizona office and actually comes to us straight from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona. Uh, Anthony, tell us a little bit about your background because I find it fascinating the things that you've done in your career. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. When I first came out of law school, I went to the Office of Special Counsel in Washington, D.C., where primarily prosecuted federal government officials for whistleblower retaliation and hatch act violations. Fast forward a few years and I'm the chief deputy attorney general in the state of West Virginia and on to the United States Department of Justice, where I was a special assistant United States attorney, an assistant U.S. attorney, senior litigation counsel, a first assistant U.S. attorney. And then before I left, I was the acting United States attorney for the District of Arizona. And that's one of the largest U.S. attorney's offices in the country. That's amazing. That's quite quite the resume, and and uh, it, I'm really uh, impressed and grateful that you've decided to join us. So now that you've uh, shifted from being on the side of the government and moved into uh, uh, private practice, um, what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen in transitioning from a prosecutorial uh, position to now a defense position? Pretty much uh, that you have to be initially that you you are reactive because uh, in most cases, you're going to be reactive to that prosecutorial action. And it's something that uh, is something you have to get used to. You have to learn to operate through on the on the uh, government side. You're all usually you're the one taking the first act uh, to either investigate uh, or or prosecute or litigate if it's a civil action. And on this side, you've got to be you've got to be ready to act you know, quickly when the call comes in. And that's something that uh, is the first thing that you run into when you first come over from the prosecution side. So I imagine as a former prosecutor, you've seen a lot of folks that are either under investigation or even under indictment that do a lot of wrong things. Um, now that you are going to be representing some of those folks, uh, what are some of the things you would recommend to someone that has um, a, an investigation that's ongoing or they're a person of interest or um, even if they, they, they even might think that an indictment is coming, is coming down, down the tracks. What would be your kind of first line of advice to them in dealing with a situation like that? I can imagine it's stressful. I can imagine that there's a lot of moving parts. Um, what are kind of like the, the first baby steps that you would, you would recommend? Uh, well, the first step would be to, to retain counsel as soon as you hear about it or before. I mean, you should if you're in that position that you think that you could be uh, getting the attention of the government, you should immediately retain counsel if you haven't already. And that's that's the first thing. Don't do anything to make whatever you have done or whatever you, you're accused of worse. I think that's great advice. Um, and in, in your experience as a prosecutor, do you find that folks that are uh, 
very guarded and reluctant to talk are, are um, harder to deal with and, and easier to prosecute? Or do you find that being open and transparent with the government is, is usually a better path? Or just does it just depend on a case-by-case -case basis? Uh, yeah, it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. And it's going to depend, on, depend upon if you're making those decisions, rather how you're reacting to the government based on the advice of learned counsel and not just on a whim or on emotions of either being scared or being upset or frustrated and letting that dictate what your next action is, is rarely, the life lesson is rarely going to put you in the best position to succeed in life. But in that situation or that scenario, you definitely want to do it on the advice of counsel. It, those, those are one of those situations where you really need to call a lawyer. If you say, oh my God, I need a lawyer, this is the instance where you call a lawyer before you talk to anybody so that yes. you get that handholding and that guidance right away. Yes, immediately. Immediately, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So one of the topics I wanted to raise with you is a topic that I work with uh, quite a bit and that you have a lot of experience in, which is this uh, kind of uh, what I call a mosaic of different laws that go from state to state um, dealing with cannabis issues and dealing with the legality at the state level versus the illegality at the federal level. For a long time, the Department of Justice was under a kind of a guideline, for lack of a better way of putting it, called the Cole Memo, which was issued in 2014, um, which was later rescinded by Jeff Sessions. I'd love to hear your perspective as a former prosecutor as to uh, the current efficacy of the Cole Memo, what's in the Cole Memo, and kind of how it still impacts the way the businesses uh, are run today. Yeah. Um, I absolutely the Cole memo is uh, was a very consequential act and what these are for people that may not be familiar Richard is that they're policy memos that come from main justice and these the ones we'll talk about today all come from either deputy attorneys general or the sessions uh, memo that you discussed that rescinded the Cole memo uh, came from the attorney general. But these usually in the in the past in this subject area come from deputy attorneys general that's who the U.S. attorneys uh, report too is the directly is the deputy attorney general uh, who handles these and the uh, the Cole memo of 2014 he actually only gets uh, notoriety for the for the 2014 is third is actually his third memo of three and the first one that caused this his first memo was a reaction to the Ogden memo another deputy attorney general that was in 2009 during the Obama administration in October of 2009, and that memo, which started this chain of memos that we talk about in this in this issue ad nauseum to people that uh, that don't understand it, are that the, the legal landscape across the country back at that time, you had marijuana was still scheduled Schedule One today, but it was a Schedule One up until 1996. When California made it legalized medical marijuana. Uh, the federal government hadn't mentioned anything in 96. They just kind of, I think it may have even taken them by surprise. I'm sure it did. And well, then and I, and I can even tell you this, that in those days, there were still prosecutions of California businesses that were legal within the four corners of California yeah. um, and fully compliant, but that were still being prosecuted by the feds for, for um, different cannabis violations. Yeah. And they were watching. So, so yeah. And in Washington, once they did the recreational in Colorado, it became even, even, even worse. And there's a number of seminal cases that came out at that time. Um, but then the Cole memo came out and kind of changed that landscape along right. with actually the Warbacher far amendment, which also came out around that same time 
which uh, in essence defunded prosecutions of medical marijuana businesses that were operating legally within the four corners of their states. But right. that came kind of concurrently and a little bit after in, in some respects. Yeah, and the, uh, and the yeah, right. And so the Ogden came out telling, telling everyone that the federal government, the DOJ is not going to prosecute cancer patients who are receiving medical marijuana as from their caregivers. And that was, that was a discussion back then. Everybody's worried about that happening. And it was happening. So that was all the way in 09. At that time, you had 13 states that had medical marijuana. So the federal government waited until 13 states had it before they gave any guidance. Then, and these aren't safe harbors that we're talking about. Would you want to make sure everybody understands that? This isn't some immunization from prosecution. This is just the federal, the Department of Justice saying that we, are, we have limited resources, and we're going to, we would like the United States attorneys to prioritize these resources in this way. And that we are not going, what they said was at that time was that we're not going to go after low level marijuana drug offenses under the Controlled Substances Act. We're going to go after, we're going to go after trafficking, cartels, and large industrial marijuana growing operations. And that's what Ogden said. I believe that's what Ogden said. And it's definitely what Cole said. Now, Cole, in this banking discussion, the Cole memo, the first one, also gave a shot across the bow to financial institutions, because while they were, he was reiterating the federal government's stance on the CSA, on the Controlled Substances Act, and that it's, a federal, it's against federal law to possess, distribute, or manufacture marijuana, or aid and abet it, he throws a sentence in at the end of that first memo that says, oh, and by the way, Financial institutions dealing with mar marijuana facilities can also be prosecuted under money laundering laws. He just throws that in there at the end. And I think that's probably what necessitated memo two. And then, of course, memo three under Cole. Right. When somebody talks about the Cole memo, they're talking about the 2014 one. That's but right. The reason there was three was because that first one was a real earth shaker for anyone. By, by the, the way, national banks today, and I represent some of these banks on these issues, and I recommend to them that they not touch cannabis deposits at all, simply because the CSA is still pretty clear about being a schedule one drug. And these are, not, like you said, these are not laws or rules. They mm -hmm. are simply a recommendation from the internal memo of, of the Department of Justice. So that, that holds very little weight in a court of law. So if they decide to actually prosecute a financial institution, they very well could under federal law. So you have to be very, very cautious, especially if you're a nationally chartered bank or if you'd rely heavily on federal regulators or the FDIC or anything to consider cannabis lending, cannabis deposits and everything else. I have a difference of opinion when it comes to state chartered banks in that many states have given them a very narrow path to be able to bank within the four corners of their state with regard to that, but they still rely on Fedwire, they still rely on, on FinCEN guidelines, they still rely on the Treasury, and they still rely on the FDIC. So there's still federal crossover that is, that is um, again, part of that mosaic that is, that is very difficult to navigate, even if you are a state chartered bank. Well, it's so it's so complicated, and it's and you're right. It's not the two points that you made that are tremendous. I really want to make sure the people listening understand is that again, none of this guidance, these memos, and this guidance that we're talking about, none of it says that what these banks are doing is legal. It just says that the people who prosecute or regulate these particular issues will not do it. It promise not to do it if you take these actions. 
And, but it's still, again, the gorilla in the room is it's a schedule one substance under the Controlled Substances Act and doing anything to aid and abet its, or facilitate its distribution is against federal law. So that's the first point. And the other one, I agree with you in that even these two things that we're talking about is DOJ and FinCEN, which is Treasury, right? You have other you have other groups that other organizations that these banks also have to deal with. You mentioned the Federal Reserve one, yeah, FDIC. You've got the Office of the Control Comptroller of the Currency. These are also regulators, and all you have to worry about all of them with this promise that hey, we're not going to go after you if you do these things. Well, okay. Well, let's take it another step, Richard, and talk about what those things are that they have to do uh, to you know to save themselves from you know uh, regulation or prosecution right and that's a perfect segue back to the to the 2014 coal memo yeah. that was the third iteration of of coal's guidelines yeah and he well in a set he mentions these in the second memo and then in the third he lays them out and also gives the banks that uh, some policies that they can they can abide by to prevent doj from going after them and it happened at simultaneously with that FinCEN uh, policy guidelines on marijuana banking that came out from Treasury. And so people understand, we're talking in acronyms here, but uh, FinCEN is the Department of the Treasury Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And that's who regulates money laundering uh, and enforces money laundering on that side of the house uh, for banks on the Treasury side. So Cole came out in 14, uh, Deputy Attorney General Cole, his final memo, the one that people talk about, it's what they, it's what they mean when they say the Cole memo when they're talking about right. cannabis. Uh, he comes out and he's got these eight practice priorities. Uh, and you know, for, we call them in the industry, the eight deadly sins. Oh, is that what you call them? Yes, we call them the eight I've deadly sins. I've never heard that before. No, that's yeah. right. So we call them the eight deadly sins. So what he's trying to, what they are, are they are policies that the DOJ is trying to the reasons that the DOJ is trying to uh, prosecute, still prosecute marijuana, and if not one of these, you have, well, I don't even know what you want to call it, they won't go after you, you have some sort of... Um, I would say that you're deprioritized. Deep, you're deprioritized, yeah. That's, you may not be an appropriate use of department resources. If that's right. You're not causing and and if you take the Rohrbacher far, which later became the Rohrbacher Blumenauer uh, amendment to the to the budget, which has to be renewed every year, by is the way. Is that what the writer is? It's yes, the, the writer. You yeah. know what I'm talking about when I say writer? Okay. Yeah, so that writer, what it says in essence is, is that resources will not be allocated to the DOJ for the prosecution of businesses that are compliant with the Cole memo pretty much and with it and compliant with state law within the four corners of their state, um, but it's only for states listed in that in that uh, rider, which uh, that needs to be updated every time a state passes uh, medical marijuana laws. And it's limited, actually, people don't realize this, to only medical marijuana, yeah. not to recreational. Right. And there's been big fights in committee at the Senate level um, about changing that, take either taking that word medical out or adding medical and recreational. And so far, there's been no budge on that whatsoever. So, so we're kind of in, in limbo with regard to expanding and covering all types of cannabis sales in California and across the country. Yeah, the, you're right. The, the medical, the medicinal part is something, is a qualifier that people, a pretty important qualifier. That's right. That is left out in these discussions. If you see them on TV or radio interviews, <clears throat> when they're talking about that, right, you'll hear them talk about the writer. Um, they do not, they don't always say medicinal or medical marijuana. They just say right. marijuana. And that's not the case. Um, technically, with that writer, maybe, maybe it's the case. Right. Practically. And and the champion of that memo uh, or of that writer was Dana Rohrbacher out of Orange County, who was a, who was a very conservative Republican who was voted out of office. So 
it, at this point, uh, I don't know who the new champion of that rider is. I know that Blumenauer was was someone that was very much uh, uh, in favor of it, but but I don't know who if there's going to be another bipartisan uh, support for that memo or not. That's something we'd have to look into. Yeah, and I don't know the answer to that. I saw with the with um, you do have you do have Republicans that are in favor of this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Warbacker was, but there's others that are in favor yeah. of it. But the the budget, the appropriations bill will come through will come through the House, so the rider would have to be a House member. So, so the, the 2018 farm bill, which is what people call the CBD bill, but it's really the, it was really the farm bill. It, it was, was the farm all bill, types yeah. of agriculture was actually sponsored by Mitch McConnell. And one of the reasons was, is that tobacco is a dying uh, crop and, and uh, people don't smoke as much as they used to. And so this allowed for those tobacco farmers to transition into hemp and grow non THC or nominal amounts of THC right. hemp but had high contents of CBD and they could extract that CBD. Interestingly though, people think the farm bill is kind of a carte blanche. It's not, it still leaves the states to create their own regulatory scheme. So like California, interestingly for a while, didn't have a CBD scheme under the farm bill. It only had one under its legal marijuana. So technically you were growing. So this is so bizarre. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, if you were growing cannabis under California law, with and extracting CBD, you were doing so legally under California law, but illegally under federal law because you're also extracting THC. And the farm bill only allows you to extract CBD. So there was this major kind of mishmash of laws in California for a, a hot minute. It was about six months. And then they finally, the Department of Agriculture in California adopted a new policy and allowed and, and, and adopted and bootstrapped a lot of the farm bill requirements. So now you can do that separate and apart and not have to worry about the federal violations of the THC laws. Yeah, no, that is that is interesting. And we should we should come back, circle back to that when we're talking about. Uh, the banking, just the, the practical banking issues in this in this space, because the hemp uh, the, people thought that when hemp was went through in the 2018 farm bill, that it was going to completely, uh, you know, make make the banking issue less complicated, and it's it has not. It's actually, it's, it's actually not more complicated, but yeah. it's made it more complex. Yeah, it, it, because it requires a chemistry kit to determine who you yes. can actually bank and who you can't and can't bank it's and nobody can nobody can agree on what you do with that chemistry kit that's right that's right it's yeah. very odd so i didn't want to take you away let's go back to the club memo because yeah well, let's go back to the eight deadly sins. sins i love that you call them the eight deadly sins just want to go over people try to, people listening may have never heard of these eight things and what what the department of justice is trying to prevent from happening while still allowing um allowing you know marijuana to to not be prosecuted in certain spaces is that they want the preventing the distribution of marijuana to minors, preventing revenue from going to cartels, preventing the diversion of marijuana from going from states where it's legal over to states where it's illegal. So crossing state lines into a state where it's not legal, preventing marijuana activity used as a cover for trafficking other drugs, preventing violence and the use of firearms in the cultivation of marijuana, preventing drug driving, so not smoking, for ingesting marijuana and then driving. That's still one of the concerns in the, in the states that don't have it. Well, uh, in Colorado, just to, just to put a pause there, in Colorado, drunk driving has actually gone down since they passed cannabis driving, but drug driving has gone up. Interestingly, though, it, drunk driving has gone down more than drug driving has gone up, but there's also very difficult, it's very difficult to test for cannabis in someone that's driving. There's no real blood test or breath test that you can do at this point. So there are companies out there right now trying to figure out how to quantify 
uh, the amount of THC in your blood or in your system or anything else. And I think it's going to be a difficult road for them. So how do they, pro Richard, how do they, that's interesting. How do they prosecute it? It's like a DWI where it's just it's like a DWI and it's based on, do you have cannabis in your possession? Did you smell like cannabis? I mean, there's like a whole bunch of other uh, circumstantial evidentiary, evidentiary things that they have to bring into those prosecutions. Well, yeah, I, I remember those policy discussions when I was in the attorney general's office, Colorado had was going through that and they were bringing that nationally to a platform to try to get best practices and you know, what the what they should do to handle that issue. That was an interesting, interesting discussion in those days. I do remember that after you said it. Sorry, uh, I, I saw a case where the, the cop said I just knew he was stoned because he had a big giant marijuana leaf sticker on the back of his car. Yeah. <laughs> no, no comment on that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Reminds me of an old Cheech and Chon bit. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, seven is that uh, they don't want them to grow. They wanted to, the feds wanted them to keep marijuana from being grown on public lands, which is an issue you have in California. Big issue you have in California. It, it is with the marijuana. The cartels coming over with your huge national forests in California, and the cartels coming over and growing big grows. Of marijuana in the middle of these national parks and national forests and securing them with guys with uh you know armed guards securing their grow in the middle of a national forest it's crazy it's crazy and it happened you see it in the news every couple of weeks that something was brought down in in that regard the other thing is this is that california as you know has uh as does arizona quite frankly incredible water law issues and you have these water districts and one of the issues we've had to deal with in the past for clients is to advise them about their water sources, because if their water sources come from a federal reservoir or aqueduct, um, they may actually be violating that part of the coal memo. And so we've actually advised them to get water from separate sources so that they don't violate that part of the coal memo, because there have been investigations that have started because the water is sourced from a federal source. I never, that's, that's, that's one I had not seen in my, uh, in my experience. We had, that, we, had, we had our first experience with that about five years ago. We were dealing with a solar farm that was providing power to a cannabis farm. And the water for the cannabis farm was coming from multiple sources. And one of them was a federal source. And we had to figure out a way to make sure that our client, which was the solar company, wasn't going to get in trouble for aiding and abetting the use of federal lands, quote unquote, or federal resources for the cultivation of cannabis. And so we had to set in our contracts with them certain restrictions of where they could get their water from. That is, that is unique, novel. I had not thought of that. That's novel. And they didn't want marijuana possession on federal property. So those were the eight the eight deadly sins, as you said. So it allowed these, didn't allow, it gave some financial institutions some solace and that they could bank marijuana facilities, marijuana growers and distributors, as long as they made sure that none of these policy points came in, uh, came into the picture while they were doing business with them. So in order to do that, think of how onerous the diligence, the due diligence would have to be to be the, I guess, to be the, the, the actual the, the investigator of your clients and then be signing off on their purity. That's the bulk of my cannabis practice is advising lenders, credit unions, uh, financial institutions, banks as to that due diligence process. And how do you document it? How do you staff it? 
what are the questions you have to ask and you have to go through everything from like for the credit unions the ncua guidelines uh for banks you have to go through the fincen guidelines you've got to go through the kyc issues and know your customer issues all the different things that we've learned about the patriot act issues that you know in law school over the last that have developed over the last 40 years for anti-money laundering aml issues all have come to a head because of this industry and for most banks it's just too much. So even with the FinCEN guidelines, which came out almost concurrently with, with the Cole memo that say, if you incorporate these eight things into your due diligence, you can do a, uh, you know, a limited suspicious activity report for certain cannabis businesses. Most financial institutions shy away from it because they just don't have the manpower or the resources to do the due diligence itself. Yeah, what, what is the, the resource um, expense? What's the increase in the resource expense, Richard, for those types so, of it's, it, it could be six figures plus because you've got to engage, you got to think about this. So, so every transaction is under scrutiny uh, under the AML laws and the BSA laws, the Bank Secrecy Act laws. Um, and so the threshold as to what type of transaction you have to analyze um, is discretionary. So if somebody from a cannabis business deposits you know, $500 on, in their ATM, does that rise to the level of having to do a full suspicious activity report? And there's no clear-cut answer on that, quite frankly. It's really up to the discretion of the institution to say, well, yeah, that's a transaction that merits uh, that merits investigation and, and a filing of, of a SAR. Um, and so banks have used that $10,000 cut, cut off, which, as you know, as a prosecutor, that's just that's really just you know a flimsy guideline that they, they, they use just to kind of set a standard for folks. Uh, I mean, I was involved in a receivership case where they, the, 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 the alleged bad guys made deposits of $9,999 every day for you know, six months. And obviously that's, they, were, they were stacking and, and doing a whole bunch of other things under, under money laundering provisions that they shouldn't have been doing. And it didn't matter that it was under that $10,000 threshold. So there's a credit union up North that is setting up an entire division, 30 employees that all they're gonna do is this analysis on these types of transactions, money in and money out, and make a determination based on their own internal standards that they've set with their regulators. They've actually sat down with their regulators to figure out what those thresholds are as to what they're gonna have to report. And they're hoping to be the next big thing in this world to bring in those cash deposits. But um, there's a case in Colorado called the Four Corners Credit Union, which uh, another credit union tried to do that in Colorado to become that credit union that was gonna be a credit union for the industry. And they're still wrangling in court with the federal government as to what they can and cannot do. So there is not a lot of clarity right now in that in that space for financial institutions and for banks. Do these do these financial institutions, banks that do that do bank marijuana and go through the, the FinCEN guidelines, by comply with the FinCEN guidelines, it, do they file a suspicious activities report for every transaction with a so, with business? So yeah. depending on what the, their internal threshold is, they have to meet with their regulators and decide what the threshold would be for those types of, of reporting requirements. But yes, if it's above that threshold and meets whatever other you know boxes they need to check, they'll file one of those limited SARs or, or, um, you know, or whatever they need to do to make sure that they're in compliance. And as their lawyers, we recommend that they do so, that we cannot in our right mind tell them not to do it because the last thing we want to have is our clients having a, a regulatory snafu because of a cannabis depositor. Um, but that being said, 
Um, if you look at the FinCEN uh, website, there are, I think, nearly 500 or just over 500 financial institutions across the country that are now taking cannabis business deposits from leaf-touching businesses. This is not just cannabis-adjacent businesses. These are actual cannabis businesses. So um, that figure has gone up twofold since 2016, at least, if not, if not more. So we're seeing step-by-step -step progress. But I can tell you that the majority of them are credit unions or smaller community banks. They are not, look, Wells Fargo, Chase, uh, uh, Bank of America, they're trillion, multi-trillion dollar institutions. They don't need to take a risk on a $35 billion industry at this point. They can wait and see what happens with the law and, and, and sit on the sidelines for now. And even if the law passes, they may choose not to do it anyway because of the impact on their shareholders or their investors or their board or whatever. So for those banks, it really doesn't make much economic sense. But if you're a small community bank um, with, with a, in a community that actually has this industry, you might be a, a, a lifeline for these businesses because the cash component creates such a level of danger that is just unnecessary. And, and it's really kind of, it's scary and sad. You know, when you have... Um, a, a man-sized safe in your building that's holding, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not seven figures of cash because of your weekly revenue um, or your monthly revenue, whatever it is, that's scary. That is, and you're a target. And they, and these businesses have been targeted time and time again with awful things happening to people, including being killed or maimed. The, uh, that's that's a point that we should make, uh, Richard. Is how they how they do business because they can't use a lot of them can't use. But several points, the questions that came up from listening to you listening to you uh, talk about that. How much does it cost for a marijuana business to use one of these credit unions? It has to cost money to open an account, right? How much it does? So what they do is they even though you cannot tell your customer that you are doing a suspicious activity report on them. Mm -hmm. um, you can charge them for additional fees for the burden of the cost that we already know that we anticipate having to have because you are a cannabis business. So they'll charge tens of thousands of dollars a year for the pleasure of banking with that, that institution. Now, what's interesting is, is some institutions won't even bank with them directly. What they'll do is they'll partner up with what's called a custodial banking organization or a custodial organization, which what? sets up that's like a management company almost. And they set up a ledger where they actually are the banking relationship with, with the institution and they handle all of the regulatory compliance issues and they take the money and they manage the money. But when you're giving your money to a middleman, that's a middleman to a bank, there are inherent risks in that as well. And, and there, it has to be really, really buttoned up. There's some great institutions out there that are doing it. There's a company called Dama Financial that's really good. Um, there's another one called uh, Eldorado, I think, or something like that that's really good. But these are, these are businesses that have strict, strict protocols and very tight relationships with the financial institutions that they're working with to make sure that they're fully compliant with these uh, regulatory requirements, everything from the SARS to the AML to the BSA and, and everything else. The, uh, yeah, that's, that's another expense that, uh, yeah. uh, businesses have that people don't think about. And they just to also to clarify, cause this doesn't, this isn't intuitive either. This is a lot of these, these organizations that <clears throat> deal in marijuana legally on the state level, still illegal on the federal level, but they're all cash. That's right. They don't take credit. They don't. They don't take credit cards. They operate in cash. And, right? and if they're taking Visa and Mastercard, there's probably something wrong. 
it, there's probably something probably going something on there, right? Yep. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I visit dispensaries up and down uh, the state and across the country to, to see what's going on in the industry. And when I see a credit card machine that's taking actual credit cards, I, I know that there, there's likely some break in uh, some chink in the armor that needs, needs to be looked at. And they, they, do they pay their employees? So they, they have a credit union. If they, if they have a bank that's, using, that's allowing so, them to use so There are payroll them. companies that are now taking on payroll, but okay. usually it's done through an, uh, a, uh, an affiliated uh, employment company that then gives the employment employees to the operating company. What we try to do when we're setting these businesses up is we try to isolate the operating company from as many things as possible. Part of it is because of 280E tax issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is, is because of the banking problems and everything else. So if you have your real estate owned by one entity, your equipment leased and owned owned and leased by a second entity and your employees uh, employed by a third entity, and then the operating leaf touching entity then pays for those services from the outside entities, it may be that those other entities are considered uh, adjacent to the cannabis business, not the leaf touching business itself. It can therefore maybe get banking or get a credit union relationship or whatever. But it's not it's not guaranteed. But believe me, sometimes some some institutions look at it and say, look, this is just a shell game. And we're not we know that this is really for the benefit of the operating company and we just don't want to deal with it. Whereas others are like, OK, you have enough separation between the, the employment company and the operating company. The other issue is 280E, which, which we talked about offline, which is that the federal government doesn't allow you to deduct or depreciate most of your costs other than your cost of goods because it's an illegal activity. So from a tax perspective, our tax specialists are um, trying to figure out ways to minimize tax exposure um, for the leaf-touching entity. And one of the things we do is we establish it as a C-Corp because that way it just pays its full taxes. And that way you don't have to worry about um, any of the uh, of the pass through risks that that may come from from having a pass through entity, you just tax it right at the C corp, and you deal with the double taxation issue for the shareholders or the owners or whatever. But um, but at least you're getting a full you know documented payment of your taxes to the IRS in a legally compliant manner without any gamesmanship at the upper levels with your pass throughs. So so it's a very interesting. Uh, situation where usually you try to minimize your tax exposure. And in this instance, we're saying, nope, pay it right there, right up front, transparently and open to the government because you don't want to mess with this. And do you, uh, for people that don't, that aren't in the industry that happen to come across this, this podcast, Richard, do you know what, do you have an idea what the, or paraphrase what the wording is of 280E? Do they know um, what the question is we're talking about? Um, so the, the 280E, we call it the Al Capone law, and it was established to tax unlawful gains so that even if you make money illegally, um, you still have to pay taxes on it. And there's actually a box on your tax form that everybody has that says, did you make any money illegally? And if you check that, you've got to report what you made illegally. Now, I I don't think most people think that they should check that box, but our, you know, our, our cannabis businesses should check that box because they have to check that box. Yeah, they have to. And and what's crazy is this, and I know we talked about this offline, but I'll mention it here. You know, if you're paying 35 to 40% to the federal government, 20% to the state government in taxes and eight to 12 to 20% to your local government, 60 to 80% of your gross revenue is going to taxes before you've paid your rent, your employees for your inventory or anything else. 
And it's, so it's no wonder that a lot of these businesses are teetering on the edge of insolvency and looking for new investors and new capital all the time. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, that, that is uh, something that I think is lost on people that aren't in this, this business day to day or only they're on the, you know, they, they glance over these types of policies when they see them in the news, they may have some interest, but only on the peripheral that these businesses on their taxes said there's on 280E says it, did you receive any money from illicit activities, from illegal activities? You have to say yes. And then how much? And then pay taxes, pay the federal government taxes on the federally illegal activities that you had that year. That's actually on the tax form. A lot of people may gloss over it, check it, and then think whoever, who would ever say yes to that? Well, cannabis businesses have to. As long as it's a Schedule One, they're going to, they're going to have to. And, and any of the solutions that we're seeing now, Richard, in D.C., uh, they're not anywhere close to rescheduling uh, five years ago. Everything dies in the Senate, as they like to say. Um, so the House uh, last week passed a decriminalization of cannabis uh, and rescheduling of cannabis. Um, it passed by uh, 30 plus votes over, over the majority with uh, bipartisan support. It will die in the Senate. because How many Senate, times have they done that? Um, I think this will be like the 13th time, maybe, or the 12th time. It's, it happens every every other year pretty much mm -hmm. and um in some sh shape or form it's it's sometimes it's to create a safe harbor for banking sometimes it's to, to deschedule the drug sometimes to change the schedule of the drug but in some shape or form it comes up every year every other year um and and then they all die in the senate um and i don't see it changing anytime soon i think that with war in ukraine 70 style inflation uh the split politics that we have today between Trumpism and Obamaism and everything else. I don't think that Congress is going to get their eye on this ball for a long, long time. And I think we're, we're looking at 2028, 20, 2030, 2032 to see meaningful change. I think we're very far away. I do think, however, that what I call the blind eye policy is going to continue, which it is the Cole memo, the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment, the, uh, the the defunding of the DOJ for prosecutions, the FinCEN guidelines, the FDA DA approval of certain cannabis-related uh, things, the USPTO now taking cannabis trademarks. Uh, those are the blind eye policies of the federal government. So, and I think is so long as businesses stay within the four corners of their state and they stay legally compliant within those four corners, I think that they'll they'll be able to continue to operate pretty much without federal intervention. I think the problem is, is what, with what I call coupling. If you are doing cannabis, but you're also laundering money for illicit activities, um, if you're doing cannabis and human trafficking, cannabis and any other crime whatsoever, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. But if you're just doing cannabis and you're following the letter of the law in the state that you're in, I think you're in better shape. For banks, however, it's a different story. For banks, there's two problems. It's that relationship that we talked about with the federal government, with FDIC, Treasury, and everything else. Um, but it's also the cost. That the cost it doesn't make sense unless you really are going to be, uh, like I said, that small community bank that's going to work with that community that actually has a lot of cannabis business. Other than that, I don't see it as as changing much uh, uh, going forward. I think that the reason why we have 500 banks is if you take the 36 states that have some sort of legal cannabis uh, scheme within their states, if you divide 
500 by 36, you're, you, it's not a lot of financial institutions in the end. It's, it's actually a very small number. Um, and it's not enough to service an industry that is, you know, a 36 billion to $40 billion industry. Yeah. It's, uh, and it, I, I, I do think that, uh, that what do you want, what do you call it? A mosaic of, uh, of complications of this bi- banking, this business, or even being in this business, but especially banking this business, because uh, it's not for these banks, it's not their, it's not the only thing that they do for the cannabis business. It's the only thing that business does a lot of times is, is they're in the distribution, manufacture, production of cannabis. The banks right. have a lot of other things going and This is quite, a, quite a complicating factor if they were to get it when they do get into this. Um, I, I think I agree with you that uh, they're, they're not going to. I don't know if you're going to see them dive into this with the way the infrastructure is right now, with the, the certainty being, and the cold memo is not even there anymore. I mean, as far as technically, the cold memo is not there. It's, Bar, yeah, it's, 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 it's officially rescinded, even though it's yeah. been reaffirmed by, by FinCEN itself in, in a letter to Congress. But it's, so it really is a mosaic. So I think on that on those uncertain terms, uh, we're getting close to the end of the podcast, so we should wrap it up. I want to thank our uh, newest colleague Anthony Martin for joining us on What the Buck. Um, we talked about everything from uh, dealing with uh, white collar investigations and the cannabis industry at large, and some very very interesting issues with regard to banking and navigating the mosaic of laws that exist in this industry. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Richard. It was a great time.